0: Welcome to a special edition of our show, History on the Rock with Katie and Allie. Normally just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about women in history. <laughs> we have a very special guest here with us today,
1: Dr. Bronwyn McShay. Welcome to the show.
2: Hi there. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Dr. McShay is a historian, writer, speaker, and artist with research interests in the early modern church, especially in France and in colonial and missionary contexts. She has written a lot on these subjects, but is here to talk to us today about her new book, and I'm going to say this with a very American accent, <laughs> La Duchesse, The Life of Marie de Vignorelle.
0: You say it La Duchesse. La Duchesse. La Duchesse. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. Well, I live in New York City. Uh, I'm an historian. Um, I do teach some church history, but I I also have taught more broadly uh, French history and European history. Um, I've loved history my whole life. I was one of those nerdy kids who loved to, uh, you know, escape into different time periods in my mind. Um, and so I knew fairly uh, early on that I would get into um, historical research and writing. And so, um, yeah, writing books on a time period that I sort of stumbled into, but I'm glad I did. The 17th century um, is is just something I really enjoy doing, and um, I love talking about it as well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: perfect so before we get into your book we have to get into the cocktail we made for your book um Great so ways. this is obviously called sorry is it la, Douche, la, la, duchesse, yes. la duchesse thank you <laughs> I so want to say duchess because I'm obsessed you with it the duchess but, yeah, uh, yeah the perfect this is called la duchesse and it is gin gin liqueur which is a great gift we got from uh the Pump gin company pomp and whimsy uh creme de violet and lime juice and you shake that all up and it turns and it's just a really beautiful it's cocktail. Really beautiful. Cheers. Cheers. cheers
2: thank you that sounds so so great
0: mm-hmm. and just be careful with the violet we have used too much sometimes okay. and it's a little okay okay floral, but <laughs> it
1: tastes like potpourri if you yeah. put in too much <laughs>
2: Yes okay, so light on the violet,
1: yeah, <laughs> um okay, so before we dive into your book, can you set the scene for the time period that Marie is living in? What is life like for women in in her
2: era sure, so she she's an aristocrat, she's born uh into France in the year sixteen o four, and France is just recovering from a period of uh really bad religious wars, kind of internal conflicts over protestant and catholic differences um there's a very young king on the throne he's only three or four years old at this time so his mother marie de medici is kind of ruling in his stead and people don't like this having a a woman technically in charge and so there's worries about more conflict over um oh excuse me when she's born uh his father's still alive henry henry the fourth but as she uh when she's a bit older this young king um uh, takes over um, in 1610, sorry. And um, so that there's more conflict over politics and especially having a woman in, in power. Um, and I think for many women in the time, most of them are just working difficult lives and farming and ordinary types of things. Um, the great majority of French people among the aristocrats, um, including Marie's family, there's a lot of privilege. There's people have large castles and uh, people working for them, um, but for young women, especially someone like Marie, who's in this family that's trying to kind of negotiate its position in French society, young women are basically put on the marriage market very early. They're they're sort of given away to families for various, you know, political or um, you know, reasons that have very little to do with their personal preference, um, and so she faces that as a as a teenager. And um, many women, however aristocratic or noble, uh, don't have that many choices. And so her her life, um, it's on my phone, I'm so sorry, I thought I turned it off. Um, her, her life is uh, something that she, as we see in the, the book I wrote, um, I'm just impressed at the various ways she tries to kind of maintain control over various things over time and, and sort of chart her own path independently. Mm-hmm. So
0: because a lot of kind of unexpected things happened to her. Um, she was married off to a military officer when she's 16, but she's a widow by 18. I mean, did she think her life was over at that point? I mean, what typically happened to young widows during this time?
2: Well, I think it's hard to tell what she was thinking. That's one of the challenges of the book. We don't have that many words from her, especially in this early period. Um, she did decide to go into a convent and mm-hmm. and kind of... Uh, spends she spent a long time. It seems like she she very much considered becoming a nun after this, which suggests to me that she had possibly a difficult time in this marriage. She barely knew this man uh when she was married off to him. Um, um I he died in battle, so he was a, a war hero. And she did inherit some money uh from his family, not a great deal, but um and she had um everything her family put into the dowry was was hers again. So she's in this unusual position where she's very wealthy, um, but also seems to be very um, unsure about what to do next. And mm-hmm. her family, of course, including her uncle, a powerful churchman uh, who's who's a political churchman, are very much hoping she'll marry again. Uh, they see this as a new opportunity for her. Um, mm-hmm. She's single again, and she's still very young. And so this, this becomes kind of a, she's in sort of a battle of wills over this matter for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So
1: So her uncle that you mentioned, he's, a like you said, a pretty famous, powerful churchman, a cardinal. And her life takes a bit of an unexpected turn when she becomes his right hand and eventually his heir. Why did he trust her so much?
2: I think it it wasn't his natural uh, instinct to trust his niece. He had a nephew, her brother, um, Francois, who was kind of next in line he's a, as a churchman he has no children um so this nephew is in line to inherit the dukedom the duke de richelieu position and the the prestige of that um because Rich, cardinal richelieu himself both his brothers um uh, one of his brothers died and another brother who was supposed to be a bishop went off and became a monk and the mountain so richelieu ends up being both the duke of richelieu and a cardinal uh bishop and so he has a lot of the weight of the family legacy on his shoulders while also being very prominent in political life and um he ends up kind of taking care of his niece and nephew uh because um their parents die at different stages the mother dies very early the father a little bit later so he takes them into his care and um he he is trying to he what he spends the time he can despite being very busy kind of grooming them for these high level positions and his niece, Marie, just proves to be more capable, more responsible. Her brother proves to be kind of a spendthrift, um, just not as capable in the things he's asked to do. And over time, Richelieu is a bit resistant, trusting his niece as much as he does, but he really, he sees how valuable she is. She's She, despite having wanted to run away as a nun for a time, she proves to be very effective uh, at court, kind of spying for him and... She's very discreet. She doesn't let secrets out. Um, She's very capable meeting with high-level people on his behalf at times, which is not a normal thing for a young woman to be doing. And she also has a lot of courage. Like, she faces some difficult situations, including a kidnapping attempt Mm -hmm. against her at one point. Um, And instead of sort of fainting and acting the way uh a, a young woman in her position maybe is socially supposed to act she wants to sit in on the meetings on on you know letting this plot unfold so they can catch more people involved and she sort of gets into the nitty-gritty of this and so i think he he just a number of occasions um he's just very impressed with her and then as as the story shows he entrusts her as his main heir mm-hmm. when he dies
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i believe From what I gather, with this inheritance comes a good bit of power and responsibility. I mean, what kind of power did she have in French society? I know you mentioned she would talk to people like King Louis XIV, who's a very famous figure, so she's (laughs) attached to him. And (laughs) so how did she wield her power and what did that power really look like?
2: So a lot of the power, so the way government worked back then, um, I'm, I'm smiling because some people might say it works this way today, but um, <laughs> local families would literally sort of buy into the government. They would own political offices. They would use patronage, uh, like financial ties into various um, institutions, whether you're talking about tax farms or even the royal household. Um, so you'd have someone like Richelieu, who actually was, backing some of the salaries of court officials who are working as ladies and waiting mm-hmm. um, certain families are loaning the crown a lot of money as well as buying up different positions and richelieu kind of cobbles together over time it's kind of this empire of government offices and patronage uh, ties to the government um, and so when his niece uh, is his heiress she not only inherits a very large fortune some of which she is guarding for a young nephew, um, but she really controls, and some of which is hers in her own right. She inherits some palaces, but she also inherits these tax farms, um, sort of the patronage powers over uh, different people. Um, She has control over a a governorship in in Northern France. Um, And I think one of the most valuable things of all, he entrusts his state papers to her, so the next prime minister, Cardinal Mazarin, had to ask her for for certain documents that that he wanted to, you know, if he wanted to check the history of things. So she has a lot of secrets about people at her fingertips. She has um, the kinds of documents you would normally kind of pass on to a state library. Those institutions don't exist yet. Richelieu was sort of part of um, a group of people who were creating some of those modern institutions, and so he trusts his niece to safeguard his entire many of his records, uh, as well as his, his patronage powers. And and this allows her to kind of um, have a very strong position in the uh, administration of the next... Um, in, in Louis XIV's, uh reign, he's a young, young king, um, but his mother, another woman, is, is governing for a time, Anne of Austria, so she's kind of one of the right-hand women uh, in that court, um, and she's also able to kind of, I think, remarkably... Um, she helps fund the creation of new french bishoprics around the world in a missionary settings she she kind of controls things going on with the church as well as uh the state uh, in a way that is open to few women certainly very few women who are not royal mm-hmm. so and a lot of this derives from her relationship to richelieu mm.
1: mm-hmm. Now, when you're writing the book, were there fun stories or anecdotes about her that you just really enjoyed writing about or were excited to include or even that surprised you?
2: Yes. Well, there's one. Uh, there's one that I, I don't want to give away too much because I mm-hmm. want the book. But. Um, OK, there's an old biography written of her in the 1870s, and the author is a Frenchman. He sort of um, shaded into fiction here and there. And he pointed out she had this friendship with this other cardinal, this layman and a cardinal. There, it's one of these strange 17th century things where you have a a man who's not ordained in the church who is a cardinal somehow because of his family. And she describes them as having a, a daughterly and paternal relationship. And he cites a few sentences from letters from her to him. I found the, those same letters in the archives in France, they're, they're longer than what he quoted. I also found out he's 11 years older than her. That's too young to be her father. Mm -hmm. I I read some of what I found in the letters were very emotional. And I started to wonder, did she have some sort of romantic feelings for this man? Mm -hmm. Um, Because there's a a question. She never remarried after this first marriage. And people wanted her to remarry. And the traditional story was that she always wanted to go to a convent, but that Richelieu didn't allow this. This is kind of the, the pious interpretation of her life and i i just began to wonder if she actually did have this tremendous love for this man and i found some more evidence and um that story ends up with a bit of tragedy so i don't want to give away the details but that was a surprise that she had this mm-hmm. th- there there's more going on in her private life than than um sort of historians in the past have seen and then another thing quickly um mm-hmm. i found letters of cardinal mazara the next uh, prime minister after richelieu um i've I've, you know read french histories of this period i never came across anything like this i found many references in his letters to her as his chief rival for power at court (laughs) when you have like the the most powerful man in french politics yeah over whom a civil war erupted in france Mm -hmm. and you and he himself tells you she's his most dangerous enemy I just couldn't believe that had not made the history books yet. And so this, this that was sort of historian's gold there. So I, I i had to get into the story of the Franz Civil War and, mm-hmm. and her part of it. Now, a lot of what she's doing is behind closed doors. So it's hard to kind of track everything she's doing. But um, the, the sort of intrigue and political uh, machinations, she, she was really kind of masterful at it. And I, I think she learned a lot of that from Richelieu, but she also kind of developed her own skills in her own right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned the letters. Um, Were there any other really interesting sources that you got to go into? What kind of sources were they? Was it mainly letters or were there diary entries or other things that you got to kind of explore to get a little more into, you know, kind of this mysterious woman's life?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so the the challenge with her, she didn't have a diary. Um, She Mm -hmm. did burn a lot of her personal papers, unfortunately for me. So Mm -hmm. I had to rely on often one-sided conversations and letters where maybe the person she wrote to saved her letters. Um, but then the other side, she might've, you know, burns the letter that was sent back to her. Um, there were lots of, uh, she had this unusually public, uh, um, life. So there are lots of sources where she's, you know, signing contracts or, or kind of orders are being given on her behalf to people. um, Richelieu's correspondence, the correspondence of of various political figures, uh, churchmen, others, she's mentioned. Um, and there are some memoirs written by people, people at court. There's a, a woman who was a lady in waiting for Anne of Austria, who refers to her a number of times. So you get sort of secondhand glimpses of her where you have some gaps in the the record. Um her will was very interesting, uh, just the, the things that she cared about uh, mm-hmm. at the end of her life. It's a long document that was special to kind of get to touch that. Um, yeah, and, and there's actually kind of the beginnings of kind of gossip magazines uh, appeared in this time period. So there are actually magazine-like discussions of, say, parties that she threw, mm-hmm. you know, who who's who French society is at <laughs> which table at the dinner, what kind of chandeliers were on you know in the ceilings and um what kind of food was served so you get a sense of the color through some of these sources um so it's a wide range and the the main challenge is to kind of not make too much of any one kind of source because you have there are limits and you don't necessarily have um kind of corroboration for everything you would like to talk about so um yeah
1: when you were researching, did you get to travel and be in any of the places where she had been? And if so, what was your favorite?
2: Gosh, that's a great question. So, um, one of the things I discovered early on that upset me as as someone who wanted to visit places is that um, her greatest, the chateau that she loved the most, her kind of vacation home outside of Paris, was was torn down in the early nineteenth century. So, some oh. of the physical legacy mm-hmm. is not there. Um, but her childhood home, where she grew up, uh, this, this place called the Chateau de Glenay, it's in Batu, um, I discovered it was kind of a ruin, and I visited there on my own once, took some photos, I, I, I realized, I basically trespassed on the property and realized that somebody had purchased the building and was maybe planning to renovate it. Mm-hmm. A few years later, during the pandemic, I get an email from this Frenchman who owns the chateau he discovered I was working on this book and he and his brother had bought the chateau and they're rebuilding it to its the way it looked uh in her time period and so I went to France uh this past June I got to hang out with these two brothers we're friends now and um we just sort of were amazed that I'm reconstructing her life at the very same time they're trying to reconstruct this castle Mm -hmm. and uh, these are the Durand brothers um I also got to go into her home in Paris the Petit Luxembourg. Uh, which is actually closed the public because that's where the president of the French Senate is based. And mm. so I actually had to, these these brothers actually helped me connect with a French Senator to get me private access to this building. Oh, wow. And that was, that was amazing to have to be welcomed as kind of a VIP into this, this beautiful mansion. Um, I got to go into the Palais de Luxembourg next door where the French Senate meets. I got to see some of the historic chambers in there, the chapel of the Sorbonne where her, Uncle's famous tomb is is actually generally close to the public these days. So that one I had to kind of really yeah. <laughs> really convince them to let me in. Um they they were reticent because there's actually some structural issues and um I basically just begged them, please, I'm yeah. in France for just a week and I'm writing this book. And they very kindly did let me in. So I, I really had um, especially this past year, a number of very welcoming uh French French officials and and people who helped me with this. So um that was that was pretty great. Yeah. And I got to see some small French towns uh, where there are archives but um so I got I got to explore different parts of France but some of those were not places she spent time in they were just where the the vagaries of where the archives ended up over time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So this person obviously has taken you now, you know, across France and you have spent a long time writing this book, which is so detailed and wonderful, but it's shocking because when I Googled her, her Wikipedia page is like this big.
2: Yes. Um, So I'm hoping someone, whoever writes Wikipedia pages, I'm hoping they (laughs) fill it out faithfully to my book.
0: (laughs) I'm so curious because I've never heard of her. So how did you find her and kind of start on this journey?
2: Yeah, I, I sort I stumbled across her. So I, my first book was—I—I I, I was not a scholar who was going to get into women's history per se. That was not my um, my ambition. Um, but I was my first book is a more academic book on the French Jesuit uh, missions to North America because I was interested in the French Native American uh, encounters in the colonial period. And I was, you know, looking at the missionaries themselves. But I started noticing in the mission sources they would refer to some. Uh, like lay people who were patrons of the Catholic mission they were doing. And this one woman's name came up a number of times. She founded a charitable hospital in Quebec, which I thought was remarkable to do in the 1630s. And I realized she was Richelieu's niece. And I just, something about about her, I just kept notes. It's almost like like I had this instinct that I was supposed Mm -hmm. to keep just collecting notes so I I was in France a few times finishing that book but I I kind of secretly on the side was researching about her trying to find out more about her and I I think I knew something was up I started to notice she's mentioned in the footnotes of scholarly works on a very wide range of subjects so she's not sort of featured in any one book in any serious way except for this old biography that reads semi-fictionally um and I realized, wait, if this one woman is appearing in books on French literature, French religion, French political life, uh, this she must have been important. And so I started to kind of collect footnotes and trait and find documents. And I I took a risk. I went to some archives and not knowing what I'd find, I ended up finding far more than I expected. And um and I realized I just had to do this. It's almost like a responsibility I, I felt to tell this woman's story because you know, I don't like to harp on this too much. I really do believe that had her brother not been the disaster he was and <laughs> accomplished half of what she did, there might be monuments, you know, in, in France to him that he would not have necessarily been forgotten. Because mm-hmm. he would have been the Duke de Richelieu, um the heir of the family. And um and I yeah, so I, I think I, I I did start to care about making sure this woman's story was told in full not in idealized forms or or kind of um, forms that mainly serve the story of her uncle or say the saint she knew Vincent de Paul. Um, So yeah.
1: Hmm. Mm -hmm. Just in terms of a of a skill-based question as a historian obviously you had to read a lot of primary sources. Did you start learning French in college in high school or did you get interested in the topic and then start to learn?
2: So I studied studied Spanish when I was younger, and I never really used that as a scholar, um, unfortunately. I started taking a bit of French uh, in college, but I really had to get serious about it when I was working on my first book on on the French Jesuits, because those sources were all in French, so... I, I spent time in France, I, I learned a very good Parisian accent, but so my, my accent is always better than what I have to say with the accent. So I, I, I tend to kind of stumble into awkward situations when I'm in France, um, because they think my accent's great. But um, anyway, but um, yeah, I had to really learn the language for that first uh, book project. And so then it was that was in place by the time I was working seriously on this one. And and my language, my, my French language, uh, Obviously improves when I get to spend time in France itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are usually surprised to learn that uh, most of the sources in the 17th century it's it's rather modern French. This is the time when the Académie Française is founded by her uncle Cardinal Richelieu, and so a lot of the the sort of standardization of the language happened early there. Um, there are occasional sources that are very difficult to read, either because of handwriting or their strange turns of phrase. But I, I have friends who can help me with those if I'm not always able to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think all of your work has paid off beautifully. Uh, it's a gorgeous book. I love the cover, just the feel of it is amazing. Um, and we hope that all of our listeners can go out and get it and learn more about this pretty forgotten woman. (laughs) So, (laughs) 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 so where can people find you and your, the rest of your writing and your study and where can they find this book?
2: Well, I have a website. I think I need to update it. It's uh, (laughs) BronwynMcShea.com. I'm also on Facebook and and, and, uh, Twitter. And this book is, um, it's appearing in Barnes and Nobles around the country. Um, There's various online stores have it available. Um, So yeah, there's different ways they can find it so and me (laughs) (laughs) awesome
1: well thank you so much for coming on it's been such a joy Talking to you and thank you for finding this woman in footnotes and bringing her to life for the rest of us because I didn't want to do it. Yeah.
2: (laughs) My pleasure. I I, thank you for taking an interest. It's, it's, uh, I'm really glad I got to speak with you both. I love the series you do. So this is, thank you. you. (laughs) We're terrible. Yeah. Our our
0: research (laughs) is not as
2: terrible. (laughs)